who studied the Bible for hours a day, said that a lifetime was really not long enough to understand the Bible. And that kind of struck me when he said it, because if any man knew the Bible, he did. But he said, you know, a lifetime's not really long enough. And so it's good just to kind of plow through it on a regular basis and see what God has to say in there for us. Um, today we're going to talk about what John talked about, which was, uh, he talked about three different individuals. One was a giver, one was a taker, and one was just sort of an all-around good guy, faithful guy. We're going to focus more on the giver and the taker because John puts a little bit more attention to that as well. And we'll see if the Holy Spirit uses any of these words to kind of make a one-degree difference in your life. Let me start with prayer. Father God, you are eternal. You are never changing. You are always there for us. We're the ones that wander away. God, you are consistent. You are all-powerful. Today, God, we're in your presence. We're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would speak to us individually right where we are. That whatever words are spoken through the epistle of John might connect with our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So we said last week that the John of the author was probably the Apostle John. And we said he was probably around 100 years old or so. So he was the oldest living apostle. So to say he was an elder, because that's what the text says, uh, would be appropriate. He would be the oldest um, apostle. This is a very personal letter written to uh, John's friend named Gaius. Now, there's four different times that the word Gaius, the individual Gaius, is mentioned in the Bible. And most likely, there are four different individuals. There was a Gaius of Macedonia. We read about in Acts. It was uh, Paul's traveling companion. There was a Gaius of Derby mentioned in Acts 20. And there was a Gaius of Corinth that Paul baptized, and he talks about in 1 Corinthians and Romans. But this Gaius was a close friend of John's, uh, someone John had led into having a personal relationship with Christ. So he refers to him as his child, his spiritual child. It was a pretty intimate relationship with him. So let's look at the first couple of verses, verses 1 through 4. John comments on Gaius's current health, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in health. I know that I know that it is well with your soul. For I greatly rejoiced when some of the brethren arrived and testified to the truth of your life, as indeed you do follow the truth. No greater joy can I have than this, to hear that my children follow the truth. So he starts by saying, I pray that all might go well with you. Or other translations say, I pray that you may prosper. Then he says, I pray that you may be in health or in good health, as some texts say. So physically, he may have been sick. We don't know. He was simply commenting on his good health. But then he says, I love this. He says, I know it is well with your soul. And when I read that, I just stopped. And that just really grabbed me. It is well with your soul. Emotionally, he was confident that it was well with his soul. He was at peace with himself. And what a treasure to live with your soul at peace. It is, is it well with your soul? What if somebody asked you that? Is it well with your soul? Now, you might be sort of weirded out because we don't use those terms anymore today. 
We're more in the, it's kind of old school, we're more sort of in the genre of saying, are you happy? But I think saying it's well with your soul has a much, has a much richer, has a much deeper meaning. And I think that's what John meant here. He wasn't saying everything cool. There's a time for that. But was it well with your soul? It's really made me ponder, what is it that causes my soul to not be well? It also reminded me of that hymn that we all know well, the old school hymn by Horatio Spafford. Uh, it was put to music by Philip Bliss in 1876. It is well with my soul. And many of you might know the backstory of Horatio, but he was a successful lawyer and landowner in Chicago just before the Chicago fire, the 1871 Great Chicago Fire. And then he was ruined financially by that and then by the economic situations that followed that in 1873. But he was still planning on traveling to Europe with his wife and four daughters. But last-minute changes necessitated him staying back to talk about some zoning issues. Again, he was a lawyer in Chicago, and he sent his wife and daughters on without him. And as they were crossing the Atlantic, and you probably know this story, the ship collided with another ship, and it sank rapidly. And all four of his children were drowned. And he sent this now famous words and a telegram, saved alone. His wife sent the words and a telegram to Horatio Spafford, saved alone. And shortly after that, he was sailing to go be with his wife. And then he penned the words to this hymn as he crossed the spot where he was under the impression that his daughters had died because the ship had sunk there. See, he understood life at a deeper level. And he realized that current tragedies did not mean life was over. It could still be well with his soul, even without his daughters, because he knew the real meaning of life. And so I just want to stay with that for a second. And I want us to look at just two verses of that hymn. And I'd sing it a cappella, but you really wouldn't want me to do that. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river, whether I've got peace coming in like a river or I've got billows, waves of sorrows, you know what, whatever it is, whatever my lot, you've taught me to know that it's well. It's well with my soul. In the second verse, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. We talked about that this morning. We sang about that this morning during worship. Even though Satan's going to buffet, even though stuff comes at us, life comes at us, I still have this blessed assurance, this strong, deep conviction that Christ died for my sins. He knows my helpless estate. He knows what kind of a person I am. And he shed his own blood for my soul, for my sins, for my life. That hasn't changed. That doesn't change no matter what comes at me. Therefore, it's well with my soul. And I thought that was a powerful little one line in one book, one chapter of the Bible. But it just jumped off the pages. And when you read the Bible, sometimes that just happens. Things just sort of come off the page at you. And so I share that with you. Well, let's go back to the text. 
John knew that Gaius's soul was well. He knew that Gaius knew the truth. He was clear in his faith. He prayed for the health of Gaius. He was assured that his soul was at peace. And he praised him for his spiritual health. He rejoiced that he followed the truth, it says in the text. He was living life according to the standards set by God. And the reason John knew this is other people had told John. The actions of Gaius were evident to other people. He wasn't living just kind of a private life. His life was characterized by a good reputation. And John knew that. It was a faith-filled reputation. And then we read the often quoted verse of knowing no greater joy than to hear that my children follow the truth. Now when you read that in context, you can clearly see that it refers to his spiritual children, Gaius, and not his biological children. But even though that it's true that we do find great joy when our children follow God, walk with the Lord, I'm just mentioning the fact this verse doesn't say that. And so it's just important to kind of notice the text in the context. Just a little comment there. And after John spoke in glowing terms of his physical, his emotional, his spiritual health, then he commented on his generous giving in the next couple of verses, 5 through 8, reading those. Beloved, it's a loyal thing to do when you render any service to the brethren, especially to strangers who have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey as befits God's service. For they have set out for his sake and have accepted nothing from the heathen or the Gentiles. So we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers in the truth. So one can only wonder if the generous giving of Gaius brought on the healthy body, soul, and spirit by way of a sort of a divine reward. Like Paul said to the church in Corinth, whoever sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So maybe his good health his good emotions, his good life as a result of his giving. Don't know. Or maybe his healthy body, healthy soul, healthy spirit caused him to be a generous giver and think of others. I don't know, the text doesn't say that. But this sort of made me curious. I wonder which came first. But going back just for a second to Horatio Spafford, the author who wrote the hymn, he was able to live life well and find peace in the midst of trials, and he also became a generous giver. He and his wife had three more children, and another one died through scarlet fever. But they settled in Jerusalem, and they found a messianic group called the American Colony. And after World War I, the American Colony played a critical role in supporting communities in the midst of great suffering and trials by running soup kitchens, hospitals, orphanages, other charitable sort of adventures. And all that was after some very tragic events in his life. He became a very generous giver, even in the midst of it all. So whatever the motive we read, it's important to be a cheerful giver. And it's in the Bible often, the thought of being a giver, of your time, giver of your money. John was commending Gaius on his giving and noted that by supporting the workers, it was as if he was working right alongside the traveling preachers. 
He was a fellow worker, it says, with the truth. So when you give to someone, you give to an organization, whether it's financially or with your time, engage, if they're engaged in the promotion of the gospel, you're actually spreading the truth with your dollars, with your time, with your money, just like the Global Connections efforts. They're spreading the love of Christ, which in some cases leads to gospel-centered conversations. Your fellow journeying with them. So you're not just making it comfortable for the people you're supporting, even though the funds may be just doing that. You're sharing their gospel efforts. So it's a much bigger window than simply, I need some more money. And Paul said that as much in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 through 12. He said this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing into many thanksgivings to God. See, there's an earthly benefit to supporting the gospel work, meeting their physical needs, that kind of thing. But then there's a heavenly benefit. Lives being saved, harvest of righteousness. So I don't know where you are in terms of supporting the work of gospel-centered individuals or gospel-centered organizations, but there might be something to pray about, whether or not God is sort of challenging you to put some time, to put some money elsewhere. And I'm not coming up with any ideas. I'm just simply kind of raising, as the text does here, sort of the thought of giving. Certainly the local church needs your support first, but who else is God prompting you to support? Just some thoughts. But continuing on, John had some hard words in the text for another Christian brother. Don't know quite what he was. He was in the church, possibly one of the pastors, possibly an elder, possibly one of the leaders in the local church. But he was more of a taker than a giver. So we're working with another individual here. And he says, I have written something to the church in verses 9 through 11. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge my authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, parading against me, which means falsely accusing me, with evil words. And not content with that, he refuses himself to welcome or support the brethren and also stops those who want to welcome or support them and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He who does good is of God. He who does evil is not seeing God. So here John describes this, this individual, Diotrephes, as being egotistical, not submitting to spiritual authority, promoting evil gossip, not supporting gospel work or practicing hospitality, even trying to stop others from doing that, even putting them out of the church. So Diotrephes sounds like an extreme opposite to Gaius. But one can only wonder, and I was kind of pondering this, was it well with his soul? Was he physically and emotionally healthy. We can read how his spiritual health was not good. John rebukes him and refers to him in this, as, as, to his spiritual life as being evil and warns against following him. Strong, strong words. So finally we come to the third faithful and dependable brother, Demetrius, in verse 12. He doesn't say very much. Demetrius has testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. I testified him too, and you know my testimony is true. This man had a good reputation 
in and outside of the church, and John spoke of his own personal endorsement of Demetrius. You know my testimony is true. That's all he says. That's all he says. And then he closes with some similar words to the letter that we read last week in verse 13 and 14. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll talk together face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So the chapter is short, but as I prayed over the chapter, I just sort of said, God, what are you saying through this chapter to me? What do you want me to say to the body? And there's three things that kind of jumped out at me as sort of a takeaway that would cause your soul to be well. And the first thing is to be clear in your faith. Gaius knew the truth. He knew what he believed and why he believed. Are you firmly convinced in your faith in God? Do you understand the concept that I am a sinner saved by grace? That doesn't change, even though my circumstances might change. That doesn't change. That I'm secured. Hanging out with a bunch of guys last Sunday night, Terrence asked the question, he said, so how's your faith? And it was one of those kind of strange questions that caught me a little left field, but it made me think, how is my faith? Am I clear in my faith? Does my faith waver? Because my circumstances change. See, my emotions might waver a bit, but am I clear in my faith, as Gaius was clear in his faith? And that becomes sort of the bedrock of even though things are going on, I'm clear in my faith. And the second thing that might be helpful for us to be consistent, to be, to be at peace with our soul, is to be characterized by your faithfulness. See, it's possible to be clear in your faith and not be faithful. Just as it's possible to be very faithful but not have a lot of faith. And maybe you haven't separated those two out before. But to to have faith and then to be faithful means I'm going to be known by my works. My works, the things I walk, the things I do, the things that you see in my life will be characterizing me as someone who's faithful and will show by my actions my faith. Or I'll be someone who's just always doing things, always trying to almost... Uh, accomplish the approval from God or from others because I don't really have a lot of faith, but I'm doing a lot. But I'm really insecure and I'm really fear-filled, but I do a lot. That's being very faithful without a lot of faith. And so those two, when married together, live a pretty peace-filled life. See, Gaius was walking in the truth. That was what John said was his greatest joy. And others reported to John that he was walking in the truth. He lived it out publicly. And one way he lived it out is that he was supporting the traveling preachers. Faithfulness is your faith in action. So we're told to show elsewhere, we're told to show our works by We're told to show our faith, excuse me, by our works. That's called faithfulness. Now, Diotrephes was obviously a man of faith. He had authority in the church, but he was not faithfully acting out his convictions. 
He was actually characterized by holding to his own agenda. Pretty selfish. Which brings us to our third and final takeaway. To make sure that it's well with your soul. Is to be consistent in your flexibility. And that might seem like a little bit of an oxymoron. The word consistent and the word flexible. But I needed a C to fit in there. That was a joke. I'm just kidding. I didn't need a C. I really wanted that word. I thought it might get a few more laughs. But, got it there. But I need to be flexible on a consistent basis. See, to really be flexible, those are consistent choices. See, Gaius supported traveling preachers even if they were strangers, right? Strangers don't always tell you when they're going to come by. Friends might, family might, or they might not. But strangers tend to pop up in our lives unexpectedly. So God might allow us to meet people that we weren't prepared to meet. 2 Timothy 4.2 says to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. When I'm ready and when I'm not ready. Flexibility. God may allow us to be in situations outside of our comfort zone. If we stay selfish or rigid or unteachable, we're, we're going to lose our effectiveness for being the hands and feet of Jesus. See, as we age, some of you are getting very old. We either become more grace-filled or we become more rigid. We do one or the other as we get older. And it's a consistent choice to be flexible, to allow God to have his way with us that might not be the way we would have chosen or we become more stuck in our ways like Diotrephes was. Or we realize that, you know what, life is changing. I need to change with it. I need to roll with it a bit more. Not that, gospel, not that the gospel message is changing. Our faith is based on the same foundation. Be clear in your faith. But the application and the style of proclamation will change. And as we get older, we either get more rigid or we get more grace-filled. And the strangers is what really stuck out to me, that Gaius was involved with strangers, people he didn't even know, people he wasn't prepared for. I wasn't thinking of doing this. It wasn't my way. So we live in this hugely changing culture. We've had a lot of changes as a church. There's just all kinds of changes. Anywhere you look, there's changes, changes, changes. Can I hang with that? Can I figure out where my role is in that? Clearly, social media is a huge change. There's some of us older folks that might not be as comfortable with that. Might almost rebuke it because it's like, oh, whatever. But you know what? Next to word of mouth, next to word of mouth, the number one reason people come to a church is because of our website. It's not the ad in the newspaper. What newspaper? If you're under 20, you don't read those things. Or overheads. right? So it's this... Uh, it's, it's the ability to, to change with society, not lose your faith, not lose the gospel, not at all, but to recognize that, you know what, people look for a church on the internet. They just do, next to word of mouth. And Facebook is a great place, place to spread the gospel. Okay, yeah, it can be used for bad things, and yeah, it can confine a lot of your day, and yeah, some people don't have a life and they live there, and that's a different story, but nobody here, of course. But it's that notion that can I stay flexible? I'm going to be clear in my faith. I'm going to be characterized by my faithfulness 
recognizing that my life speaks more than my words do. And I'm going to be consistent in my flexibility. Because God may bring strangers by that I didn't really plan on being involved in. Or may I, I may have heard a talk about global connections that I had no intention of being involved in, but maybe I should. Because God is challenging me to give. Because I'm not a very big giver. I don't know. So right now what we're going to do is we're going to practice putting your faith, faithfulness, and flexibility into action. Because we're going to take communion together sometime during the next three worship songs. And that represents the conviction that Jesus is my Savior and his sin, my sins were born on the cross. And we're going to put it into action publicly because we're going to come forward sometime during the next three worship songs. And we're going to practice flexibility because this is not the routine here. We've changed the routine. But here's why. We think communion is a part of worship. And so as you worship, and let's stand right now, as you worship, when the time is right, come up and talk to God. Confess any sins. Have a moment. And take the bread and dip it in the cup. And remember what Jesus did for your sins. And we can do it in a different way. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just different. It's flexible. But we're acting out our faith. And we're secure in our faith. And it's a great reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we do it every week for that reason. Father God, thank you for the words you've given us through Third John. And God, I just pray today that something said would make a one degree difference in somebody's life. God, this is your book. You're the author. I just communicated maybe poorly some of the thoughts. But God, I want you to get the glory. I want you to have the heart and life of every person in this room and everyone listening to this. I want you to have their heart and to have their life. God, take control. In Christ's name, amen.